excluding redevelopment, if you think about it, this represents the most significant in investment that we had in these areas in a generation. And we need to make sure that uh, the impacts are felt for generations. Welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to KLBP, Long Beach Public Radio. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, and this is City Council Meeting Notes, bringing you a recap of what went down at the Long Beach City Council meeting each week. We'll talk about the decisions, the stakes, and the occasional drama. You just heard there from Vice Mayor Rex Richardson on the significance of the $208 million Long Beach Recovery Plan, which the council approved this week. Long Beach Forward Executive Director James Swazel will join us later in the show to discuss the recovery plan. But first up, the council met before their regularly scheduled meeting to hold a study session on the city's financial outlook for the next few years. And for the first time since the pandemic forced the council's meetings to go virtual, the council members appeared on video. During the study session, city officials expressed optimism that the next budget won't see major cuts, despite the pandemic taking a chunk out of the city's reserves and likely plunging future budgets deep into the red. Officials are hoping that promised federal aid from the American Rescue Plan, recently signed into law by President Joe Biden, will allow them to delay any budget deficits by a year. Without the one-time federal funds, the city would be facing, at minimum, a $30 million hole in the next budget cycle. Here's budget manager Grace Yoon. The American Rescue Plan funding gives the city the opportunity to provide relief and recovery in FY22 through support for residents and businesses and allowing the city the ability to maintain services. The FY22 shortfall, previously 30 million, is now resolved with the proposed use of federal funds. You can also see that the FY23 shortfall, which was previously 7 million, is now 37 million as a shortfall in FY22 is now shifted to FY23. Putting off the shortfall by a year will mean that fiscal year 2023 will be projected to be in the red by at least $37 million, but it would give the council more breathing room to come up with ways to structurally solve the deficit. The council this week also voted to study the possibility of offering up to eight more marijuana dispensary licenses for people from underserved communities. Back in 2018, the City Council established the Long Beach Cannabis Equity Program to open up opportunities in the burgeoning cannabis industry for low-income individuals and those from communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs. While the program has helped applicants become employed in the industry, the program has failed to produce any cannabis dispensary owners, and currently there isn't a single black-owned cannabis retail storefront in Long Beach. Here's community advocate James Marks, who called into the meeting to provide public comment. Imagine opening a lucrative store or brand in which you've uh, worked hard to build. And then now you've been targeted by mass incarceration and your family's destroyed beyond reconciling repair. And that same product that you used as a survival mechanism is now a legal flourishing enterprise in your community. And that, that has somewhat formed a, a monopoly and excluded you and others like you from your community from participating in the wealth, growth, and development 
of that in your own respective communities economy. Eighth District Council Member Al Austin says the big problem is that there aren't any retail dispensary licenses specifically set aside for participants in the equity program. In 2016, voters capped the number of dispensary licenses at 32, all of which have either been issued or are in the process of being issued. Councilmember Austin's solution, add eight more licenses for equity owners. Let's listen to what he had to say on Tuesday. Today, there are, there are no, currently no Black-owned cannabis retail operations in Long Beach that I'm aware of. And for that fact, I'm not aware of any um, Indigenous or people of color or minority-owned storefronts. Our current equity provisions allow for 40% social equity and employment for retail cannabis, but there are no provisions to allow for ownership. And that's a glaring flaw in our equity program, in my opinion. As a progressive city that is leading on racial equity and inclusion, we can and should do much better. Now, if you recall, in January, the council asked city staff to look into ways to give equity applicants more ownership opportunities in the cannabis industry including establishing a process to regulate shared-use manufacturing facilities and delivery-only services, both business models that typically need less investment up front than brick-and-mortar dispensaries. At the time, creating a program for equity ownership of retail dispensaries was put off because it's a somewhat thornier issue policy-wise. One big fear is that equity applicants who have been given a storefront dispensary license will fall victim to predatory practices, as has been seen in other cities. Assistant City Manager Kevin Jackson said Long Beach needs to figure out a way to avoid that pitfall. What we found is that there are partnerships that have been formed with investors that begin with the equity applicant having a majority ownership, 51% or more ownership. But then uh, shortly thereafter, these uh, equity applicants are, are not either in the majority ownership or they're no longer in the ownership structure at all. And, uh, and so what it, amounts, what it has amounted to is there are multiple instances in, every, in multiple cities uh, where they're just investors have employed predatory practices and taken, advantages, taken advantage of equity applicants. Councilmember Austin's proposal to license more cannabis storefronts was met with some pushback on Tuesday from Vice Mayor Rex Richardson, who questioned whether the proposal had been fully fleshed out. These things need to, need to be done the right way. I don't want to see, you know, I don't want to make ourselves risk, you know, increase the risk of exploitation. Somebody in my community get a license, they're moved out six months from them. I want to make sure that it's tight. If the goal is to explore and to provide cannabis entrepreneurship opportunities by, by open up brick and mortar, I support that. Easy build on solid foundation. But ultimately, the two came to a compromise, with a couple of friendly amendments being added to the original proposal. One calls for all city revenue from new cannabis enterprises to be directed into youth programs and communities most impacted by the war on drugs. The Second Amendment would create a pipeline to prioritize locals for any new equity retail cannabis licenses that may be offered in the future. A report on adding these additional retail dispensary licenses to the cannabis equity program could come back to the council as soon as mid-September. This is KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, we'll talk to James Suazo, Executive Director of Long Beach Forward, about the Long Beach Recovery Plan approved by the Council on Tuesday. Stay with us.
Flores, editor at Forth.org, and you're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLVP 99.1 FM. Let's turn now to the $208 million Long Beach recovery plan that the council approved this week. The plan lays out the tentative roadmap for spending one-time federal, state, and county aid that the city expects to receive in the coming year. About $152 million will be coming directly from the American Rescue Plan, which was signed into law by President Joe Biden earlier this month. These funds offer the most spending flexibility for the city, and a good chunk of them, about $78 million, will be going to replenishing the city's reserves and plugging next year's projected budget deficit. Other big expenditures in the plan include $25 million for direct business support, $29 million for tenant assistance, $12 million for homeless assistance, and $5 million to fund quarter cleanups and trash collection. The council also approved the mayor's recommendations for $12 million that were unaccounted for in the initial recovery plan, and includes funding for things such as microtransit pilot programs, expanding childcare, mortgage assistance, and a community land trust. The recovery plan also funds some initiatives that community advocates have been pushing for some time. Here to talk about that is Long Beach Forward Executive Director James Swassel. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. 
So at over $200 million, the Long Beach Recovery Plan is a massive injection of cash into the city's coffers. Uh, Vice Mayor Rex Richardson likened it to a mini budget on top of the city's existing budget. What are some of the highlights for you? First off, this is a huge deal. And I don't know, you know, beyond, I think, the pomp and circumstance that we're hearing from, like, our elected officials and city leaders, this is really, really an impressive plan that has been through several iterations, but also really came together in an unheard of um, short timeline. Um, From the get-go, you know, a lot of different groups in the community um, have been talking about this is the time in a global pandemic where we need a bold action and bold steps to talk about a recovery, a recovery and ensure that it's equitable. So, I mean, there's a lot to highlight in this plan. You know, obviously there's, a, you know, a lot of different funds dedicated towards relief for different sectors, whether it's nonprofits, businesses, restaurants, and things like that. But there's actually some really equitable um uh, pr- approaches in this recovery plan, including, um, you know, a million dollars to create um, three new housing navigation positions within the city. A lot of our um, groups um, and Long Beach Forward and a number of other organizations we were pushing for um, a rental housing division. Now that for the first time in literally the city's history, we have a slew of different um, new protections and laws for renters, anti-eviction and moratoriums. Um, And so we really need the city to step up and actually provide support for renters um, to navigate all of these laws and actually ensure that they can keep their homes. Um, So there's a really bold investment there. There's also $900,000 for uh, an addition to the city's initial investment of $250,000 for a right to counsel program, which is like an amazing model. Um, San Francisco passed this as a ballot measure uh, about a year ago or so. Um, And this is a model where similarly to the Long Beach Justice Fund, which also got a boost in investment in this plan, it provides legal representation to individuals who are facing eviction. You know, the unfortunate reality is that because of this pandemic, we're anticipating there's going to be a huge increase in evictions. And so giving um, renters in the city a fighting chance to actually stay in their homes is, is huge. Um, we also got, you know, things like a million dollars for a community land trust investment in the city. So like beyond just, you know, oftentimes we talk about we need more affordable housing where there are these models that housing market rate housing is subsidized, right, by government or other grants and things like that for families. We're looking at models where the like community owns land and homes and they can't be displaced from that, right? If somebody owns their home or owns the land, they can't be displaced um, in that way. And so this is a really awesome model that we're that's finally like has money behind it in the city of Long Beach. Um, you know, there's a, there's a couple other things too that are really big. We're finally seeing investment, like actual dollars in um, Mayor Garcia's uh, proposal for a universal basic income program or UBI for short. So that's $2 million. Um, We're also going to see $500,000 in direct financial assistance to immigrant residents, especially as we're seeing all these, you know, the stimmies come out and everything left and right and all these conversations nationally, right? Undocumented folks are excluded from that kind of support. And so this is a really big investment for the city to step up and actually provide um, support and relief for the undocumented community as well. So I know a lot of these priorities that you just mentioned um, were being advocated uh, for by Long Beach Forward, uh, was there any any of the items that that you guys wanted that that didn't make the cut? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we didn't necessarily 
as Long Beach Forward, we did this work in, in collaboration and coalition with a number of organizations, including the Long Beach Coalition for Good Jobs, um, the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, um, the Language Access Coalition, um, and, and Long Beach Immigrant Rights Coalition, and a lot of others. And so, you know, collaboratively, we really looked at what the community had come up with around the people's budget over the summer um, and really looked at where is our opportunity to continue that work and really make that bold step um, in terms of um, the city's direction of a recovery. So we, you know, we didn't necessarily get everything we were um, organizing for, for instance, you know, to really accurately um, fund a right to counsel program, we need, wanted to see a much bigger investment. Um, and we really wanted to see the formation of a big rental housing division, right? And I think we got a lot of great elements of it. Might not have been everything we want, but it's 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 a huge step. Um, and really the, um, really thanks to the work of, you know, like Vice Mayor Rex Richardson, the community who really came together um, and organized on this. So there's still work to be done, you know, and a lot of it is going to be in the accountability to actually make sure these dollars get, you know, into um, the community's hands or that, you know, decisions are made in an equitable manner. Um, and there's also challenges, right? We know these are just one-time dollars, right? So there was a lot of conversation that echoed um, in other arenas um, in the community about, you know, why are so much of these funds for direct relief going into our reserves, right? Which were, you know, depleted a lot in our response to this pandemic. And, you know, I think that's that's a fair argument to have. And I think we heard that at the city council meeting. You heard certain council members talk about, you know, our biggest priorities in terms of relief is relief, like putting money back into our city reserves. Whereas others, others were saying there's need in the community now and there has been before. This is our opportunity to actually make a bold investment in that. And so... You know, we've heard that debate. We're, we're going to see that going on. And I think ideally we would have liked to see less of that money just go into, you know, the reserves and more into actually supporting the community need. But this is still huge first steps um, in actually looking at paving the way for an equitable recovery and for it to actually happen. And, and you touch on something that I think is important to highlight that these are one time uh, funds. And, you know, as we saw during a study session, that the council held before the regular meeting, the, the city is gonna be looking down the barrel of a deficit in coming years. So, you know, is there a fear that some of these programs that are getting funded by this, this one-time uh, injection of cash may in the future disappear? Absolutely. I think that's that's a huge point that like, you know, we celebrate today. These are really amazing wins, but like the work does not end. Right. So um, these are the the city is um, is required to spend all these money, all the monies um, within a certain time frame. Um, believe that's 2024 that they have to spend all of these funds. Um, and so it's going to be, you know, it's going to require us as a community coming together and to really continue organizing to really look at how can we within our normal budget cycle, which um, really ramps up in the summertime is when all these public negotiations happen to really ensure that we're actually prioritizing all of these solutions that we know are community led that we know actually work can actually lift people up out of poverty and actually change all of these, you know, inequities and things that we've seen and we see in our community year after year, right? All of that comes from the budget process. And so this isn't about a one-time, let's, you know, support language access or let's invest money into community ownership of land and housing or, 
you know, support renters just with this one time. This should be the business as usual, right, in the city. And so it's really going to require us to continue that advocacy, to really continue that organizing, and even, you know, being able to think about what else. There's a lot of other ideas that weren't funded in this plan, right? And, um, and a lot of other solutions that we could really love to see in the city budget. And so it's really gonna be up upon us as a community to really lead that conversation and ensure that this happens, you know, even beyond this current council. And now you mentioned the this rental housing division. Now there wasn't necessarily a line item, um, you know, that in this recovery plan that read rental housing division, but you mentioned that some of the elements of, of, of that were included. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So this was um, the city included one million to create three new what they're calling housing navigation positions in the city. Um, these positions currently don't exist. So these are new um, positions. And, you know, there were arguments made on from the council dais and from staff as well that like these are one time monies. We don't want to create, you know, permanent solutions to this. Um, but, you know, as we've mentioned, now's the time for bold investment and people need help now. And so we appreciate that, you know, the city and um, council members um, approved a motion to ensure that we can provide this kind of relief. Um, and to be honest, this work is already happening and it's being done by community-based organizations that are receiving no resources to do this, right? We're doing it because it's the right thing to do and people need help now. And so it's a perfect example where you're seeing um, trusted messengers, community organizations, and others step into a role that our local government should be playing. And we're picking up that responsibility, right? And so um, this is going to cover these three positions for over a two-year period. Um, and, you know, our hope is that we can really make a strong case that these positions are vital and need to be structurally funded as part of our ongoing budget, not just in an emergency. Because even in times that are a non-pandemic, right, in the before times, this help was needed right there's so renter um a housing renter and housing law landlord and tenant law in california is extremely complex and when you really understand and look at it it greatly favors and power dynamics greatly favor landlords and so there is not a lot of help out there for renters um especially in navigating extremely complex legal situations um and the the power dynamics favor landlords. And so this is a real um, a step in, the pos in a positive direction to actually provide navigation, legal support, even issuing bulletins to ensure that renters don't face retaliation from landlords. Th and this is nothing new and, and innovative. There are other cities like the city of LA, many other cities across the country that have entire divisions and departments dedicated just to this piece. So even though it's only three positions, it's a start. Um, but, you know, hopefully one day we'll actually see a formalized and permanent rental housing division in the city of Long Beach. And another big win for housing advocates is this uh, community land trust. There was some seed money of a, a million dollars that was included in this recovery plan um, to start that. And I know this is something that housing advocates have been calling for for a very long time. Can you kind of explain what that model is um, and, and why it's so important. Yeah, it, it's actually really exciting. I mean, like the housing policy nerd in me would like can geek out of this forever. So looking forward to the next two hour show where we talk about community land trust. But anyway, the way it works and is that um, 
through uh, uh, like a nonprofit organization, a housing nonprofit organization, or what we call like a, a community development corporation, um, an entity is able to purchase land just as say, you know, a company purchases property or you as, as um, future homeowners might purchase property to own a home and they can, um, the people who are part of that CDC or that nonprofit organization own that land and can develop housing, whether it's, um, you know, like what would look like apartment buildings or things like that. But the difference is that instead of there being one landlord or a company who owns that, it's the, the ownership is among the people who live there, right? So these might not look different from what we see as normal apartment buildings out in the community, but it means that if there are, you know, in terms of uh, people who are paying rent and things like that, they can't be evicted. They can't be um, impacted by gentrification displacement in the same ways that we're seeing right now. And so it's a real innovative model to not only build generational wealth, but also ensure that people can keep their homes. People can build, um, you know, um, uh, uh, financial stability as well. Um, and it's, it's something that is, you know, a proven model across, um, across the country. A lot of other cities have done this, whether there's been local government help or not, but this 1 million from the city investment to actually do that is like a huge turning point in our ongoing housing crisis. Um, and hopefully a model that we can prove is, is, is useful and meaningful in the city of Long Beach. So that way we can see even further investment, um, whether that's from the city, whether that's from other folks um, and really empower local renters who have been struggling for housing for years and probably even generations and to actually give them solid stability and safe homes. And finally, James, I wanna just ask, um, at every step of this pandemic, we've seen the city's inequities being highlighted and and in many cases exacerbated. Are you are you hopeful that the economic recovery in Long Beach will be equitable? And you know what else needs to be done after this recovery plan um, in order to ensure that? Yeah, you know I think we there's the off the the phrase used a lot is the devil's in the details, right? And so. You know, I think that this is a really bold and, and strong first step. I'll also point out that, like, we're looking at a new council dynamic, and I think this is the first big action where we're seeing, you know, we're seeing, a, we saw a five, uh, you know, there's, there's different dynamics on the council in terms of like progressive visions and in terms of like kind of maintaining the status quo, right? And we're seeing the difference that that, that split makes, right? And so, you know, I think the trick is going to be that like, this was all one-time stuff. And we can't just check the box and say, look, we did something that's equitable. And now we can just keep doing what we've been doing. It's clear that what's been, we've been doing before and the status quo was not working. The pandemic, I think, made that really visceral and visible to a lot of people, even if they weren't being impacted before. And so I hope that with that new kind of lens and that new kind of consciousness, we can really start to have the much harder conversations and think about, so what does equitable distribution of funds and our resources look like to say, maybe the police department isn't our main response to everything in a public health crisis. And maybe there are other ways that we need to think about how we budget and prioritize different services. Um, and what are the things that we structurally fund versus that we fund one time versus that we make legitimate commitments to within our budgeting process. Um, so I hope that this, if anything, gives us an opportunity to really engage folks in the broader conversation around our uh, public spending and equitable funds and really think outside the box about what we've been funding, what we prioritize and how we actually respond to community needs, right? Um, 
we're in a public health crisis and we should have a public health response. And so, you know, understanding that the health department gets very, less than 1% of our general fund and are 99% reliant on grant funding that is unpredictable and unstable, that's a big deal and has definitely impacted the way we've responded. Although we've gotten many accolades for our vaccine response. And I have to say, it's been extremely impressive for all of how difficult the challenge is. We shouldn't let that limit our, the, the realm of possibility. James, thank you so much for being on and you know, hope to have you on in the future. Thanks, loved uh, chatting with you and hope to be back soon. And that's all I got for you this week, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, the council will be discussing stormwater capture and treatment projects, as well as increasing parking meter fees by quarter in Belmont Shore. Remember, the city council meets the first three Tuesdays of the month, although this month we'll end up with four meetings since there's five Tuesdays. You can follow along with our live coverage of each meeting on Twitter at LBC Meeting Notes. You can catch this program every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. on KLDP 99. You can also listen on demand at klbp.org or forth.org. That's F-O-R-T-H-E dot org. Theme music by my colleague Esther Kang. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at forth.org. Take care.